Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Welcome to Barn Blog, and today we're here with Conan Neutron of Conan and the Secret Friends and uh, the Protonic Reversal podcast and regular guest over there at Movie Night Extravaganza, quite like me, we're there a lot. Um, it's actually kind of how I know you uh, through both Forrest and through um, our mutual musician friend, Jason Miles. So... Mm-hmm. Who has been a live member of Conan Neutron, the Secret Friends, many a time? As he is, he's usually the first one to bring to bring that up, which I appreciate because it sounds better coming from him. <laughs> Otherwise, at this point, it sounds like I'm trying to like jump onto his uh, stolen valor, right? Yeah, <laughs> but it's true, and he's a hell of a musician. So why why shouldn't he? Yeah. Uh, so and feature guest or co-host, depending on, on what show it appears for Moving at Extravaganza, like who knows? But yeah, yeah, all those things are true. Um, so I've been listening to some of your music lately and I've listened to a fair amount of, uh, your, your show. Um, Mm -hmm. you, it's interesting how little play music actually gets on podcast, which is a a philosophical discussion. I think we might have, because you would think given that it's an audio format, that it would be natural, but I, I'm going to go and, you know, do my normal blame capitalism, which I like to do regularly, or here, blame explicitly digital rights and yeah, artists like not DMCA. even often. <laughs> right. Um, and artists often not even have the rights in their music. It, it d- did seem to kill the possibility of the music podcast pretty dead. Sure. Very sure. early on. Um, but I've been listening to to your show because I've been trying to get a feel for where music is right now off the mainstream radar. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a long conversation with Karthik and uh, Marcus over from Revolutionary Tracks on Left Flank, um, where we were trying to position everything. And it's very hard to get a feel 
for how musicians are surviving right. if they're not major label artists during uh, after COVID. When I say post COVID, guys, I don't mean COVID's over. It's a disease like the flu. It is now always with us unless we're very lucky. I mean post COVID happening. <laughs> um, so. How have you know you've you've sat down with a lot of musicians, a lot of independent musicians? Mm-hmm. How have they been surviving in the last year? Sure, sure. So this is, I mean, you're pretty much throwing me a Kona Neutron catnip right now. Like this, this is sort of like the raison d'etre of uh, of the show. Also, as you mentioned at the beginning, I've made records and uh, toured for the vast part of like over 20 years now, and uh, you know, I often call touring ostensibly being a traveling Etsy store because you are carrying so much crap around with you that like, you know, you have like your, there's the t-shirts and there's the hoodies and there's the records and the CDs and so on and so on. Uh, and it's just as much as selling the tchotchkes as anything else. But uh, yeah, all that's changed in COVID. And it's funny because you mentioned um, Karthik and Marcus, because I got into an informal conversation. It wasn't on the air with them about just how vital uh, the first band camp first Fridays have been. Mm-hmm. Over the past year, and for folks that aren't familiar, uh, Bandcamp is a is, is maybe the most artist friendly music service that is out there. Actually, maybe nothing. It definitely is. And what they do is they usually take a, a chunk of the either digital sales or merch sales or whatever small chunk. Like fair enough, right? But what they started doing during the COVID is they started uh, waiving that, and so everything goes directly to the artist. But also what they did is they built immediacy of like, ah, this is the day where we buy new music. This is the day that we get together and you go with your friends like, hey, you know, what'd you pick up? Oh, I got, you know, I got the Tar live album and I got the Tropical Fuckstorm record and, and so on and so on. And, and like it, the idea of like it being a social event around at purchase of music in a stream based society Turn that into a revenue model that, again, not it's not all about capitalism, right? But as far as like keeping the doors open and like you know paying your power bill and whatnot, you for musicians, yeah, for musicians just as myself, I worked it out. Actually, speaking of Forrest, I was talking to him sort of informally the other day, and I just worked out. I was like, oh yeah, you know what do we have? Like about sixty thousand plays on Spotify. Let's work out exactly how much money that is, and I worked out that it was about like I think five hundred dollars or something along those lines for like five years, and. Yeah. A good Bandcamp Friday is like more than that for someone like me. And again, I, I'm in a privileged position where I'm not not uh, you know any of those we call them like musician upper class uh, artists mm-hmm. that like live just live as being a musician all the time. But I'm not nobody either. It's kind of like sort of in between, kind of this weird uh, in between space. But like those Bandcamp Fridays have incentivized people, even if they're like you know on lockdown, to care about buying music and in a way of to actually actively make supporting music an event as opposed to something like Spotify where the music making is just to get people in the door for their thing. Like they're looking at content creation. If you look at any of the artist uh, imagery for Spotify, they um, have these classes are basically like how to do things the way we want you to do, which is like, are you kidding me? Like, I know, I know how to do this, but you've put yourself in the middle. Like uh, companies like Spotify are now the new gatekeepers. Whereas before, you know, I just had Joe Carducci on from um, Mm -hmm. found SS, not only helped found SST, but like the whole American independent distribution model was basically him and a couple other people 
which is crazy to think about. There was just a couple of people like, hey, we should make a thing where people can get the records over here, especially for like the younger listeners that would be like, what? Well, of course, everything's going to be instantly available at two clicks, but they, that didn't really used to be the case. So to have someone like that talk about musical gatekeepers like Jan Winter from Rolling Stone, that just he hated Black Flag, hated them. Didn't want them covered in the magazine. That made him the gatekeeper for that. Well, now the gatekeeper are these uh, ostensibly distribution networks that aren't distribution networks. They're al- algorithmically placed profit models that are make musicians into sharecroppers. Ostensibly. Yeah. So one You're of the things very, I did, very small, tiny shares of very, very small rents. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's even, and, and so it's different problems for, for different folks, right? If I have like a Jerry Casale from Devo on, he's going to have different problems from a, than a great Pachotto from Dillinger escape plan is going to have different problems than like a gem from the band dead. You know, it's all different gradations of models, but the point of fact right now is that it's, never been it's never been easier for musicians to get their music out and never been harder to either reach people and or even like break even let alone like make money so if you're a band that like manages to make money like congratulations you're you've done what's almost impossible and it's mostly legacy acts and not just legacy acts like you know an adele or something along those lines but look at like you know a dinosaur junior or, or something along those lines that that Worked for years uh, as a known commodity, continues to do it, continues to put out good stuff, good on them, but not everyone's Jay Mascus, right? Right. Not not everyone has that goodwill built up over like decades that like, yeah, man, I'll go see Dinosaur. Hell yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um, Jody Dean once talked, and this was years and years ago, about how uh, Pareto distributions actually really affect um, like the rent-seeking models of... Hmm. Um, uh, of content generating companies like Facebook or, or or whatever, and this was really before Spotify was even in the U.S. Um, yeah, but what you notice is that the earth, if you're not backed by these old labels who are dinosaurs and dying, yes, but they 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 built up a lot of people's reputations and got them into the market. Um, if you're not backed up by that now. You either very lucky as a SoundCloud or a Bandcamp artist, yeah. um, or you you do have you entered the field early, um, and I find it interesting because it is something where there's not usually a whole lot of comparisons between the poetry market, which I know very well because I work in it, and sure. and, and poetry market should be in yeah. quotation marks market <laughs> um, air quotes implied. Yes. Right. <laughs> Just like um, I have a music career air quotes implied. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, there's a reason why most people's first, first books are like charity awards. Um, <laughs> sure. But it's been fascinating to see the overlap and how those two fields make money. Because if you're not a professor of poetry, basically, if you're not an MFA with a tenure track gig and let's face it, that's been overproduced for two decades. So there's like something like 300 people for every one job. Um, um, (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. You make your money as a side gig at readings hawking your merch because usually yes. you can get a decent deal with your with your uh, book distributor to let you distribute it directly at the gig 
pocket the money. What I was, and I was telling Karthik this recently, like I, what I would do is I would just say, convert my, my royalties, which were like never into, more than in, I, into uh, product, into product, yeah, into itself. product, yeah, right. Send me the yeah, product. We do the same thing. Cause we, we, and that's one of the things that's uh, so effed up about like recently is like, we put out a record we have not been able to tour on at all. And you, mm-hmm. it's not like, it's like you're making money hand over fist, but you make enough to not only keep the lights on, but, but plus if you put the effort into it and right now it's vinyl, I don't know, maybe it's going to be cassette tapes the next, I mean, the whole like um, supply chain thing for vinyl and how all the major labels are now getting in on it. And so now like, it's like a year out to be able to like press vinyl. Who even knows how sustainable that is? I frankly don't give a damn. It's more just about like, what do, how do people want to get this? How do people want the music to, and, and whether they're like getting it like as a Pokemon thing, like put it up on their wall because the artwork's cool, or whether they're playing it every day on their turntable, frankly, it doesn't matter to me because once it leaves our hands, it's it's theirs to have. I'm just glad for the for the engagement. And that's why we have the other things as well. But you pick, hit on something really important that we talk actually talked about Joe Carducci uh, recently about that being, you know, you have to find ways to to um, to get it in the hands of the people. But also you got to keep the, the ship afloat. Right. And mm-hmm. so it, there's a lot of parallels to that. And just real quick, I also want to say that the major labels, uh, much in the same way that people are like, well, I don't watch cable news. Yes, but you know cable news does have influence, correct? Oh, yeah, I guess so. Maybe. No one I know. Yeah, but you know what? Like, literally, like, they put the thumb on the scale on every election, and it still has influence, whether you like it or whether you think it's cool or not. In that same way, major labels, sure, their influence has waned. Sure, you can just put something up on YouTube and, and be heard by someone in, like, Bangalore or, like, Australia tomorrow. Absolutely. But every, the thing is, everybody has the ability to do it. So now everybody is doing it. So it's that's interesting. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that like there's different sort of filters. So the people that already have come in, you know, people that have been MSNBC anchors, they're going to have like a uh, a certain constituency of people that will listen to them and hang on every word, much in the same way that if you were on a major label and you got in like, you know, during like, you know, take the 90s gold rush or like whatever, or you're uh, was it a Royals uh, Lord or something? We just happened mm-hmm. to like, what were the rules that week? Well, I don't know, but she got in. And that song is great. Don't get me wrong, but it's like she managed to like get in and like build a career off it. Fantastic, but that's a moonshot. And I, and it's, I think it's like that with any niche market. I mean, I know lots of like visual artists that are in the same sort of boat. Uh, but the whole idea of like that, yeah, don't even bother paying me. Just give me more records because the idea is like we're selling these records. You know, you're, you're always kind of like freaking one step ahead of the spider. You know, whistling past the graveyard for, <laughs> for sure, especially on tour where you're like. And then we can talk about, you know, OPEC and gas prices and, and all that if you want, but where it's literally like, okay, hopefully we're going to make enough to like get to the next show, you know, like, yeah. okay, are we, are we crashing on someone's floor and someone's basement tonight? Or are we going to like pop for a crappy Motel 6? Like, these are the real things. And so what I love, and, and apologies, this is a derivation that kind of turned into a soliloquy. But what I love talking to folks that like come from different eras of the American DIY world is really kind of seeing the the how little that's changed. But like hearing like, you know, what what they've done to like make it not just sustainable as a business model, but sustainable and interesting for the art. Like what has uh, helped them drive that forward? What, what was an impediment? What in some cases killed their love for it and they stopped doing it. I, I find that fascinating. It's about why they do what they do. 
And sometimes I ask myself that same question. I'm in a, a, a documentary about touring called Why Am I Doing This? Mm-hmm. Which is the perfect title because you ask yourself that all the time. Why am I doing this? <laughs> and, and me, I came up looking at like the cockeyed optimist in this because I actually have like positive answers to it, right? But like mm-hmm. it is it is pretty telling that, that like Eric just put through that up on YouTube and it's got you know it's already got something like it's over a hundred thousand views. I can't remember like what it is, but this is like a full-length feature documentary. Like he could have like tried to shop it to Netflix or whatever the the thing, but he was like, yeah, I'm just gonna put it up. It's the spirit of the thing. It's the spirit of DIY. Anyway, that kind of answers to your point a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, there's a whole lot here, though. I think one of the things that someone's mentioning in the chat that Paola is real. And with YouTube, that's that's kind of a crazy proposition because it is real. I know because I've had people approach me to sell me views. Like to to increase my oh, viewer rate, man. do compounded views, <laughs> and and That's I'm so always sad. like, I, I I like, it's such a bummer that like there's a market for that of like, hey, you want to appear popular? I can sell you like, and I think about a farm of like phones or computers or whatever somewhere that are all just like silently watching your show. With <laughs> no one on the, the other end up. in like India or Russia. Yeah. I mean, explain so, that to a founding father, you know, like what? Right. But, but what's interesting about this, you know, I, I, I'm going to go on my little tirade because this is, believe it or not, it's the arts industry that, that made me understand Marxist economics mm. because the only thing that's profitable in our labor in the arts that isn't captured by rent seekers somewhere are the physical commodities reproduced. Yeah. And one, one of the most disastrous things for the music industry in the long run was removing the physical commodity in electronics. Now, that's great for consumers. It's terrible for musicians. And how it's been adjusted to has been niche products that cannot be digitized in the same day literally i mean that's that's why we have a vinyl fetish you can't digitize exactly it. because it became about the device it became oh do you have the new phone or whatever right. where like you know if you go back like 15 years be like what <laughs> but they were always trying to gear towards that it's just that the technology wasn't there to be able to to get that kind of um capitalistic uh wanting urge of like your life will be complete if you get the new whatever the hell it is uh and and again speaking very briefly to what, what was your actual point on the earlier thing you know why are there more shows that play actual music well it's all dmca right youtube is so mm-hmm. aggressive about its takedowns like i'm lucky that protonic reversal is I'm not going to say not profit, but it's, I, I say it's like no ads, no sponsors, no kidding. It's Patreon only. If you, and if you want, and here's another reason why I'm coming from like the Minutemen school, right? If you want, and, and I mean the band, not the social movement, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want episodes of the show sooner, cost you a dollar a month. Enough people want it that like it brings in decent enough amount of revenue. Some people are just doing it to support the show, but I would rather have. Like a thousand people playing a, do- a dollar a month, then like be like, oh, here's at the three hundred dollar level, you get me, you know, tap dancing, happy birthday to you. Like I'm not gonna, I'm just not gonna do that. That's not what the show is. But it's important for me to have what is ostensibly a show about the nature of art, specifically like with music and a certain type of mu- musician and artist, be free of commercial enterprise. Like people, some people look at that, and I had a um. There was a special I did called The Culture of Like and Subscribe, 
with Steve Albini where we talked about this. But mm. the, the idea is like the, the people look at like, oh, monetization and like, oh, I, I've got a sponsor now. I'm official as like that's the only way to go. And that's like how like like I'm old enough to remember when there was like selling out. Oh, so and so sold out. Their music is in like a, you know, like a Bronco commercial or whatever. Whereas now, like, you know, uh, you know, I, I know plenty of younger musicians that that idea is just a foreign concept selling out. Like, what do you mean? Like, of course you want to be on an Apple commercial. Why wouldn't you be like this? The idea of there even being like, and it's not even like, it's not like I, I was like, you know, explicitly anti, I mean, I'm not crass, you know, I'm not like explicitly anti like capitalist in, in that specific way. But the idea of just being like, oh, that's distasteful that you would associate yourself with that. Now it's just like, that's an outmoded concept entirely. So that comes down to the idea of like the culture of like and subscribe, right? Like and subscribe. Like that gets our numbers up. That allows us to get bigger sponsors, so on and so on. Protonic, I just eschew that entirely. And that's just that's my choice. I don't expect it to work for anyone else. Uh, I'm not saying that I hate that I hate money. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, clearly I do. All my all my endeavors <laughs> make almost none of it. But like uh it's fascinating to me that so many people look at and I'm not going to say who, but they look at some of the uh, the the people of the genre, whether it's podcasting, streaming, whatever, and they see them go through these like, capitalistic models, and they think, "Oh, that's the, that's the way that you do this." No, it, it it really isn't. Like, there's other ways to do this. Also, again, I think we'll I'll go back just last thing. Like, we'll talk about our um, I got some new equipment, et cetera, et cetera, and I never cared about like having a nice mic until I had a nice mic, and I was like, "Okay, that mm. actually does sound." quite a bit better but people get hung up on like the mechanics of it rather than what they're putting out there i'm sure like with you you probably know some people that are like some of the most incredible poets you've ever heard but no one's going to hear them because they're like you know whatever maybe they have like some uh well i mean poetry is unfortunately a rich person's affectation art yeah. where a lot of people are proud they don't make money and aren't known it's but... a point of pride yeah it's a badge of courage somehow that like it's like you know like oh we get it yeah cool it doesn't make it good it can be good and and successful and good and not successful but by law of averages it's probably going to be good and unsuccessful much like with right music. well i mean it's it's interesting in a lot of ways one thing i, I think about him and uh podcasting world in a similar reign to you i podcasted for 10 years yeah i got a mid-tier uh streaming mic a year ago Right, exactly. I'd have it bought for me as a gift. It was like, Conan, we're getting this for you because you like you deserve to have this, and you will never get it for yourself. I'm like, I don't know about the first part, but you're definitely true about the second part. I will never get that for myself. And, and you know, there's something to be said for like, I'm sure if you have rich parents or something, like you know, like whatever, you can get like all like the top notch podcasting gear in the world. If you put out crap, nobody's gonna care. So there is it's not that there's a meritocracy because there really isn't. The idea of a meritocracy always was dubious and specious in concept. But it, in the days of there being just constant total information, forced awareness and a fire hose coming at you all the time, it's absurd. You're going right. to miss stuff all the time. I search things out. I miss stuff all the time. Yeah. And I'm like, well, my bad. You know, just should have paid attention to that. Didn't or like, it, you know, whatever. Maybe I had something else going on. And that's that's. That is the model that has been chosen for us and that we have not protested much in right. the same way that we should have been uh, stronger advocates against the algorithm. And now we just sort of rolled over and took it much in the same way that we should have been paying more attention about the Patriot Act. And we didn't do that either, because once those freedoms are given away, they ain't coming back. 
Well, I mean, it's funny because all these things are are, de- are definitively tied in my mind. I had a sure. liberal friend lecturing me about how the, the the end of privacy was a good thing the other day, and I was I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to say uh, what I said to them because it was choice um, and highly offensive. But um, <laughs> um, that's not it, way you can use it again. We'll be like, oh, right. he's doing the thing. Like I, I used "Shining City of Failure" uh, for something recently, and I was like, oh, but that was on the show, so I got to make sure I don't keep saying that, or people are going to think I repeat myself. But I felt pretty good about that. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So this liberal decided that, yeah, this decided that, that in the privacy is good. We don't need it, and 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 I'm like. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I, I might even buy total transparency as a social good, actually, yeah. if you really A, mint it. But B, um, people are monetizing our lack of privacy. Exactly. And, and, and the government's involvement in it has not been shown to make anyone safer. No. So, it, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's toothless <laughs> attempted regulation by people that don't actually understand what the problem is. And that's what's so maddening and that's when it gets into the idea of like you know uh leadership having like a generational change aspect of things it's like yeah not that it would solve everything but if you have someone that you don't have to describe what like, instagram is to like you know and they have like their printed out notes in front of them then you're probably going to be in a good position to understand like why it's a problem that like young girls are being showed these incredibly unrealistic body image things and being bullied on this incredibly popular platform there was that extensively for a long time one of the better ones to be on because you couldn't have your right-wing high school friends like long screeds about uh you know how the the government's gonna come for them and this and that etc etc it was just like hey here's my cool pet here's like a funny sign i saw i was about to say i used to go to instagram to feel good about social media about like until about a year ago yeah Um, that's that's been ruined too but i mean whatever similar with tiktok where tiktok moved from fun people doing stupid dances to like 13 uh, 13 second conspiracy theories and like (laughs) like um yeah exactly it's just you know uh, and it's interesting, though, because I, I do have to, like, somewhat tell people in regards to the algorithm. We we I don't want to say that it's your fault that you get shitty stuff because Facebook manipulates it. Um, it's manipulated. They, they have admitted to manipulating people's emotions and stuff through algorithm changes. Um, well, but you're the product. I, if you're not but, paying for the product, you are the product. Bingo. And and you also really have to be careful what you input in it. Like I, for years, I got into that dopamine addiction of negative feedback loops with uh, with Facebook, and it rewarded it with things that would set me off constantly. Yeah, check, out, check out what this idiot's up to, you know. And then you're right, ah, like, oh, you suck. What's wrong? I quit with you? using it for six months, and I come back, and it's mostly anodyne ass ads. <laughs> which which you know it just makes it uninteresting but it i just I, I it was kind of a social experiment where i was like oh and furthermore i i like to talk about this with twitter like why does all why do all musicians porn stars streamers why do we all use twitter since it's the lowest used form of social media and that's because this algorithm is the least invasive and the most yeah. organic in quotation marks. It has an algorithm. It does play a little bit of shenanigans with it, but there's not nearly as much pay to play element to it as there are to all the other. 
And, um, and if you use a uh, Twitter list, you can actually see the things you want to see, which the, right. the idea that that would be like, <laughs> that would be a bold concept. Hey, I get to see the things that I want to see, but like, you have no guarantee of that. Like face it. Like, I, I know people that try to use Facebook as like an archival form. It's like, why would you use something that is forcing purposeful ephemerality and, and permanent present tense as an archival format for literally anything? Because what you're talking about is the opposite of what it's going to do. And what's going to do is going to freaking disappear. And right. like, I don't know why you would ever do that. Why would you think that'd be a good thing to do? I don't trust any of this crap. So dude, I, I again, Earlier, non on uh, non on stream conversation I had with uh, Marcus and Karthik. It's like, look, I've been doing this long enough. By this, I mean making music. That I remember there was a time that nobody can envision a world without MySpace. Yeah, and <laughs> you got the, people now being like, "What's MySpace?" But <laughs> I, I I remember when I thought social media was Live Journal, like Live, Live Journal OG right here, man, and like. <laughs> I hope no one ever. I, is it still up? I hope it's not. I hope no mine, one. Mine, mine, one of mine is. Most of mine are not. And thank God for it. Um, yeah. Make a note to check that when I get when, when I get off. <laughs> but my, my point, uh, my point about this though is, on one hand, there's these super big brands that have become massive information brokers in our society. That I, it is hard to imagine how you're going to take care of Zuckerberg. Uh, on the other hand, these you like take care of them. <laughs> um, on the other hand, Rano's reference, uh, by the way, <laughs> satire, satire. Um, on the other hand, there is a real sense that most of the things that are not these major three brands are ephemeral, and yet we use them. It amazes me how much my media life depends on things like um, Twitter. You know, because when people tell me quit Twitter, I'm always like, and destroy my brand. Right, exactly. Right. Uh, why don't I just go write a manifesto in the woods? Because I'll be doing the same thing if I <laughs> if I get off of that. Uh, so if I may, mm -hmm. uh, much like yourself, I've been podcasting guessing for a very long time uh even before proton commercial uh, i had a previous podcast before that so uh, so the show's been around uh, going on eight years but i've been podcasting for about 10 which for me mm -hmm. is like uh, that that makes you like the elder god of podcasting right yeah you and i are, are ogs <laughs> exactly <laughs> but that said i i can tell you the exact moment and it happened during COVID. The growth of Protonic Reversal during COVID has been astounding. And one of the reasons why is because a lot of people found value in hearing these conversations in like uncertain times, you know, staring down the, the barrel of a gun financially, you know, you've got this existential dread uh, th that is involved with being a person in this world uh, in, in these days, all this stuff going on. So to, to hear these conversations that at times, you know, would also involve like, hey, how does so-and-so feel about that? Oh, okay, well, we're going to talk about that also, but we're also going to get into the whys and wherefores. I've done basically the same show for the entire time. It's just got, mm -hmm. it's gradually gotten better. Don't get me wrong. You always want to be getting better, not worse. But there was something about COVID and when COVID hit that had it, it found a, a new audience like tenfold, which is great. And it's fantastic. I don't take that for granted. I'm so glad. I'm glad people go back in the archives and find the old episodes. 
you know, I've, I've had some incredible people on that's opened doors for other people. But the point of fact is I was doing it for a long time. And in the same way that most of us that are creative are that I was over here doing my thing. And there's all this other stuff happening, but I'm over here doing my thing. And, you know, occasionally you like reach a person or two. And then that changed. So for me, I know what it's like to be on the other end of the Zuck machine when you don't have the social capital to be something that's important Mm -hmm. and how it is to at least be on the low medium end of when you are important and it, you do get treated differently. I can put it this way. A friend of mine, uh, this guy, Justin, uh, Jason Myers, not miles. Cause I have a Jason Myers and a Jason miles in my life. Uh, Justin miles, of of course, uh, Jason miles, the, um, this is revolution, obviously, and uh, sometimes plays the secret friends in, in a live scenario. But Jason Myers is an author since Simon and Schuster. And he talked about like depositing his fir- the check for his first book and basically how everyone at the bank suddenly treats you completely differently. Like like it's it, it, you get like the <laughs> you get like the cheat codes <laughs> to be treated like a, like somebody that actually means something instead of some piece of crap that's like causing causing them a problem by having to talk to you. And again, and it's not like Proton Reversal is like like whatever it does pretty well for for the uh, the niche that it's in, and I stand by all of it. But most of that growth has been the last year and a half, and I've been for the vast majority of it, I've been in the same spot that most people are that have shows. So I liken it to this. When a band has a break of some kind, when you have a band uh, like, like, okay, so an extreme example would be like idols who have mm. been slogging it out for like a long time. And then like, I think they, if I remember right, they went on to with Foo Fighters. And then like, because they had sort of found their creative nadir and they had had, were really hitting hard at what they do. They managed to connect with this larger audience because they were a, in their moment of time and able to parlay that into something better. But they also were a band before that. And they know what it's like to be like, Hey, we just drove. Well, it's England. So we'll say two hours and that's half the country, uh, two hours to go, to go play for you. And there's like five people here. So I think when you know that, and when you've been on both sides of it, you have a sort of inherent skepticism for how these platforms operate, which people seem to think they, they get this idea that it's some conspiracy against them. No, no, it's it's not a conspiracy against you. Again, it's all like ones and zeros. It's just the numbers. It's the the num the numbers of this person matters, this person doesn't. And that's that can change tomorrow. Now this is sort of like there's a couple of Black Mirror episodes about this, you know, that are sort of you know, I like that show. It's sort of like a I think it takes what the Twilight Zone does and puts it in a modern construct in a way that's that's a very deeply entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the same way, like Twilight Zone, some of the episodes are terrible, some of them are great, and some of them are just there. Uh, but there's there's a couple episodes that kind of get into that about being like, okay, so what, what about if you apply that social capital concern towards like living your life? You know, like that's horrifying. But that's what we're going for because this this is basically a freight train of like. Again, we've acceded to the algorithm to algorithm to, to like machine learning now determines what we are uh, allowed to see, what we're allowed to listen to, what we're told is good. Harkening back to your earlier point, we call that a callback that, uh, you know, what happened to like a podcast that was like, hey, here's all the, you know, the most killer songs for 2020. 
you know, here's all my favorite ones from it. Well, here comes the DMCA to be like, take that shit down. <laughs> take it down. Our copyright holder says dot, dot, dot. My favorite DMCA takedown, by the way, ever, mm-hmm. was for the theme song to Protonic Reversal, which is a Kona Neutron the Secret Friends song. Solely written, published, not performed, but like, uh, I own all the rights to everything. And put out on Seismic Wave Entertainment, which is my label, where I have 100% control of everything. So I I took great joy in in putting the, um, you get to do a, uh, like, I don't agree with this decision. Like, uh, I can't think of the word right now, but like, I don't agree with this decision, sort of like type the thing. It was like, dear sirs, dot, 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 dot. That was a great one to type because that's what the system is. And the fact that, and the reason why is because I looked into it, our distributor was like, oh, we don't have the time to be able to give you uh, the ability to do yes or no for these. I'm like, that is horrifying. Because I'm someone that, like, I license myself on Creative Commons. Meaning that as long as you're not making money off of us, I don't care. Do whatever you want. Like, do whatever you want with it. Like, it's fine. So the idea that people would be, like, for these micro pennies, right? Micro pennies of, of, uh, of potential profit would be, like, making someone just it's hard enough having a show in general let alone having something mm-hmm. worthwhile that like you know what man i'm just not gonna play music because if i play music i'm gonna get a takedown and i don't even want to deal with it like then like half the time everything is obfuscated and like misunderstood because they always are airing on the side of somebody pulling a grift and a lot of that comes from like somebody decided some years back Hey, if, if a taxi is driving by in a movie scene and you hear like a part of like, you know, feel like making love, then, okay, yeah, you have to pay us for that. <laughs> Which is the absurd in a copyright where it's like, really? Like, okay, for those three seconds or whatever it is that that was on there. And, and that's why they've kind of super aggressive, like takedown first, uh, which I might add completely depends on who you are. It completely mm-hmm. depends on who you are, what, how those takedowns, and whether you can get a human being to like work the case uh, for it. So, to answer the earlier question of like what happened to like the, like the era of like the digital mixtape, things like that. Well, it's still there, but you got to do it on Spotify or right. like Apple Music or any of the other walled gardens that keep all the artists sharecropping away as they pay them some infinitesimal, uh, you know, micro pennies uh, of what it actually is. Now, if you look at it like radio, like it's like the equivalent of uh, the modern equivalent of radio, that's fine. But the thing is we've also trained people and people have been trained that, oh, you don't need to own a music library because you can ostensibly rent a music library. That's not how they put it, but that's, that's what the modus operandi is. That you don't own this music you have a subscription to Spotify and whatever's in the Spotify library or whatever it is, you know, what it's not just Spotify. I'm, I'm harping on them because of the 800 pound gorilla. Right. But, uh, something changed significantly in music when people acceded to like, okay, cool. We do things this way now. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't like people had like a tick this box. If you want to rent your music for forever, tick this box. If you like, if you'd like to maintain your own music libraries, which I still do by the way, but I'm a wild anomaly. <laughs> Like obviously I'm a wild anomaly for in a lot of ways uh, that culture changed when that became an option. And yeah. it, it, it went unsung. It went unheralded. It went unnoticed except for things like, uh, um, you know, if you like niche EFF, 
<laughs> mentioned something about it, you know, and it was sort of like, oh, those guys. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I have a lot of physical media that you can't actually get even now on streaming. But I have noticed in my own collections uh, of things, I went about... 10 years ago, no, about 15 years ago, I digitized most of my CDs. Mm-hmm. And then I lost a hard drive and redigitized them. Right. And then... Only true heads know, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and then I think about, about, I think it was about seven years ago, I pretty much gave up on listening. To, I, I noticed that I still have my physical media collection. Yeah. Um, I still have my digitized form of it, uh, but I, you're right. I, I didn't even notice when I quit listening to it. it. It happened over like slowly over a period of two to three years, similar to when I quit downloading podcasts, frankly. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which I still do. But yeah, I get that. Like I'm an outlier there, too. But there's stuff, for example, that I know I have that I can't find anywhere. A lot of it's over DR, uh, digital rights issues. A lot of it's over because it's really small bands that right. um, don't still exist to get on these uh, platforms. I think of a band called Juno that was on a label, um, DeSoto Records. It used to be run so by Juno. Uh, yeah, they did that split dismemberment plan. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can't find them anymore. <laughs> like oh, they really? are not okay, on a streaming service anywhere. When you look them up, it lists them, and then it sh- and then it gives you the music of a different rapper. Um, <laughs> you probably just typed in Spotify. Yeah, that name's free. Okay, cool. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It's so, so it's 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 fascinating because both bios come up, but it's right. It's right, right, interesting. Right. There's a they're like DeSoto music, except for Burning Airlines, is largely in Shiner. There's two of their major bands, I, um, I guess, with Dismemberment Plan 2. But there's two or three of those bands that were not in those big three of this really small uh, yeah. DC music label that that have just been nearly erased because yeah, they're not from on history. the stream. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so it's funny you mentioned that, too, because uh, I've not only had I've, – I've had Jay Robbins on a few times. I had Bill Barbaro on also from Jawbox. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, I mean, I'm – you know, we've played with Shiner a bunch. Like uh, Josh, especially, is like a, a good friend of mine. Um, as is Alan, and it's just wild that Shiner is someone whose um, their legend has only grown since right. uh, since, since the, and actually they put out a record last year. It's, it's one of my favorite records of, of last year. Uh, it's uh, I actually noticed a whole year. lot of bands that I hadn't heard from in 18 years put out a record last year. Yeah, got Hum <laughs> put out a record, which wow, who expected that? That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's a thing. And that's Quicksand that, put out a record. There's a bunch of people. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, and Shiner's a band that like when like even pre the egg. Like when Replicator, my old band was turned around, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, you play with Shiner. Shiner's so good. Oh, okay, cool, cool. And it took me like years to check them out. Like by the time I actually finally checked them out, like the, they were long gone at that point before they got back together again. And I was like, oh, wow, this is great. Yeah, this is awesome. But like, why, you know, why has, why, why did Shiner get that treatment as opposed to, um, you know, it's funny because we've mentioned Dismemberment playing like three times. And I feel like that's a band that like, that band was huge in the 2000s and nobody, nobody talks about the dismemberment plan right now. And by right. the way, emergency and I 
that's a fantastic record. Emergency and yeah. I and Change are both amazing records. Yeah, um, and Change actually, I was not stoked on Change when it came out, and I was like, hey, this actually aged pretty well. And like, it's like, I, I, I Les Savvy Favs in the same sort of way. It's like that was the most unfuckwithable live band period. Like they were going, like they could play with anyone, no matter who they were playing with. And like, well, Les Savvy Fav was the best band, you know, because they just were astounding. But their records are good too. Yet, like. Are, are kids getting into Les Savvy Fab? I don't know. I hope so. I had Sid on, which was freaking awesome because he's in the HE band on uh, that uh, the one late night show, and that's fascinating to me. It's like okay, you got Marnie Stern, you got like uh, you know Fred Armisen, ostensibly band leading. It's sort of like the that era of indie rock stars retirement program to be on this talk show, and it's it's really cool and interesting. And they have different drummers. I was but thinking anyway. about the- I was thinking about that the other day, though, about that particular period in indie rock time. It is kind of a weird because a lot of it has either fallen off in popularity or that you can't still find it. Or like I mentioned with Juno has just disappeared. Literally um, disappeared. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, it's it's uh, it's interesting because I think that was a time period where radio rock and indie rock was super divergent in a way that it really hadn't been during the nineties and it wasn't later on, but like, you know, Danny Besner was talking about like, you know, he said something snarky about how like 99 to 2004 was objectively the worst years for music. And I kind of agreed. I'm going to have words with him. Yeah. I kind of agreed with him when it came to pop rock and, and pop. I, I think like between, between the end of new metal, um, and like the end of the boy bands and all that stuff running out of steam. But then I went back through and think about all these amazing indie bands that were touring in that time period right. that people don't have the nostalgia for. They, like it's just not, it's not the, the nostalgia has not been built the way, for example, I'm from, I'm from Georgia. I live down the street from Athens. Yeah. So like elephant six music is sort of yeah, the yeah, story yeah, of, of my childhood. Of course. Um, yeah, yeah. And I was in the zine cultures in the early in the early to mid nineties when I was a kid, kid. Um, so, so like Jeff Magnum and all that stuff was major to me. Although it was also interesting because it was one of those things where, almost infinitely now, by the time it caught on to the rest of the country, you were sick of it. Yeah, yeah, I was sick of it. And, and also, Jeff was obscurely couch surfing. Um, and it turned and, and like had literally fallen off the radar while his band became like huge, like huge the audience, the new generation. Yeah. And, and like, there's been like the backlash against neutral medical tail and then like the backlash against the backlash. So on and so on. I think we I mean, lived through like two or three. I mean, part of yeah. this, there's only two albums. So <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. there's a smaller body of work. And th- th- honestly, the thing that got me was like bright eyes because of the bright eyes being like, I mean, I remember when it was like in sound was like, Oh, bright eyes, bright eyes. And yeah, it was fine. It was okay. I wasn't exactly the target audience. It was fine. But it's like, when I was like, oh, people are still into bright eyes? Like, really? That like that, you know, and they're not 12? Okay, you know. <laughs> but uh, but like, yeah, you're talking about the era like before Modest Mouse was played in like football stadiums. Right. right? Like, like this is like there were there was uh still a thriving DIY movement, but it's like the iPod era. Right. It's the beginning of the iPod era, but ironically, that kills a lot of these, not the bands, but a lot of these uh minor labels. Because one thing I was talking to Karthik and Marcus about is the minor label as a truly independent phenomenon is damn near dead. It still exists, 
Yeah. But there's not like the it was one of the first things to get hollowed out. One because when when these big failing labels started looking for basically new IP, they started buying up the back catalogs of these indie labels and just yeah. buying them out. I mean, Matador being probably the most famous. <laughs> Matador no, and Sub Pop yeah. both. Yeah, but um, but then what you see is a lot of this stuff just kind of falls into ultra obscurity, even by musicians like, you know, we're mentioning, you know, if we're talking about the Soto records, we're really talking about like basically six bands that were friends with Jay Robbins. Yeah, but exactly. The, the Jay Robbins expanded universe. And I say that <laughs> he's a friend, you know, but like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I love Jay Robbins. I mean, I really do love Jay Robbins, but I love have you heard but, his, the solo record that came out yeah, last year? It was great. Oh, so good. So I've been actually, I haven't, I've had him on like three times and I haven't had him on since then. And I really uh, should probably get on that. But anyway, yeah, um, continue. But but you see this trend of these consolidations. You also saw the end of a lot of these ze- uh, scenes, not zines, zines, scenes Zine around the, really. the editor, the the end of the iPod. So like, yeah. re- there's still regional music. Like we can talk about like the Savannah metal scene, or sure. but it's a lot less, or, or you know, or Atlanta trap house or whatever. But it's a it's, lot. It's more niche thing. Yeah, yeah. It's more of an it's more of a niche, uh, a niche thing. And so that's why it's interesting to me to have someone like Chris Murphy from Sloan on, mm-hmm. who's like, you know, and that's astounding. Just because we could talk, we could have a whole podcast about their whole founded in fairness, equal shares for everyone, equal songs on each record. Like, I mean, talk about communitarian efforts. I mean, holy shit. But like, also, they're still a band, right? All the, their contemporaries, like they gave it up long ago and there, there's a lot of reasons for that but to see someone that's like been through all of these eras like literally started during like the indie rock gold rush and like weathered each of these storms like the ipod era into like the streaming era into like whatever the sam hill we're in now like that's fascinating to me and that's fascinating for a lot of the listeners as well because of course as you as you might imagine for protonic get a few people that actually uh, are creative and play music hard to believe i know that listen to the show and that's going to be something where that's unifying to hear how, like, how, how do you survive? How, how do you like make it work for you? And that's a band that also like, let's also remember Canada has a uh, certain regulations that require you to play a certain amount of Canadian artists per hour. And for the longest time that led to things like, you know, bands like Eric's trip being like, you know, like maybe a little bigger than they would have been warranted if they were just in some indie band and uh, things along those lines. But then like a band like Nickelback comes out and then suddenly like, you know, Nickel, everyone's like, oh, we can just play Nickelback and that satisfies the criteria, which is just like, oh, right. This is the only earth that I can live on. But yeah, I mean, it, but even then, you know, this, this, this corporate melange manufactured rage BS gets to, Get, make its way into the system because we've ceded control to people that ultimately are going to try to find the most tame and manageable thing. Like when I talk, you know, when I talk to a lot of people from, you know, a sense of like the nineties music world or whatever, it's just, it's just how clear, just like it was to me as a, a kid listening to this stuff that the authentic stuff, like, you know, your Sonic Youths and your Nirvana, your Mud Honeys, your Butthole Surfers, your Melvin. Your grunge and New York noise scene, right? Like, yeah, all that stuff versus like something like Stone Temple Pilots or like Candlebox. Candlebox, fuck. Oh, a man, silver chair. 
You and I are in a similar generation that you can mention Candlebox and I know what you're talking about. Right, exactly. (laughs) Madonna. That was like Madonna was all about Candlebox and Push. Oh my God. And it had all of like the trapping. It had some of the trappings of like Nirvana and like Pearl Jam. But it's just like, wow, this is the worst thing that I have ever heard. And like every once in a while, um, I'll have, I'll see uh, like somebody. it's terrible that's like because because by nature the fact i still pl- a tour and make records and play music and so on and so on i feel like my friend base continues to get younger while i continue to get older it's kind of weird but like i'll see people trying to, as like, a leftist too just heads up yeah i was gonna say i get it without <laughs> unique music yeah yeah um but i see people sort of trying to like hey can we do a critical assessment of i'm i'm i don't want to be mean i'm not gonna mention the names of, of like whatever like you know like some band i'm like Ugly Kid Joe. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Critical assessment of Ugly Kid Joe. Yeah, perfect example. You know what? Fuck those guys. Yeah, that shit sucks. <laughs> that shit sucks on a level that, like, I'm like, that that shit is like Mitt Romney, Ted Lasso meme sucks. Like, that's how, mm. that's how, like, what's the worst thing that you could think of? And made all the worse by the fact that it's, like, adjacent to things that are actually good. Like, that's Ugly Kid Joe, right? So, right. like, so... What <laughs> are so like, like snow to rap? If anyone snow, remembers that, yeah, exactly. Oh God, thirty. What is it? Thirty inches. <laughs> a, 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 a Canadian rapper who had a faux Jamaican yeah. accent. I um, mean, but Pete Buttigieg is like the ugly kid Joe of the Democratic Party. You well, know? that's true. People, I mean, people are like, "Hey, it's great. He's young. He's blah blah." It's like, I'm sorry. Have you fucking like? Are you insane? Have you like looked at like what this dude's all about? Like. It has the trappings of all the things that you like and support and and none of the depth. (laughs) What up, Jason? (laughs) They really cost my two favorite white people. That's awesome. (laughs) That ugly kid Joe references for you, Miles. I mean, it, it, I was thinking, like, what band's worse than Candlebox? Um, but you, but you managed to dig a little deeper, but it's a, <laughs> good on you for that. But, what was yeah. I exposed to at 12 that, that damaged me in some profound way? Right. No, um, it's interesting, though, because, I, you know, I, I started off, I've talked about this before. I started writing about politics by writing about music, which people sure. yeah. don't no, because it's also back in the far deep history of the internet and it's not findable anymore because no matter what people say about the internet being forever, it's ephemeral as fuck. Um, Especially these days. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, there are essays that I thought were going to be up for years that were up for like decades have disappeared in the last like five, six years. I can't even find them on the internet archive. And I'm like, What's happening? I keep waiting for the day that the Huffington Post totally spikes their old archives because that's maybe my only like brush with like quote unquote mainstream attention is like a few articles I did when I was like regularly writing for them. And like that was definitely a case of like, do they know I still have the keys to this house? Like, because I still got the keys to this house. I'm just going to keep going. Like, I'm going to keep going until somebody tells me to stop. <laughs> and then I'll probably still keep going after that. And they finally did, but th- that was the case with lo- so a lot of weird shit ended up in Huffington Post. And by weird shit, I mean cool shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not just talking about myself, but I mean I got I got to like write an article about like how um you shouldn't call them pro-life, they're anti-choice, right? And this is a George Lakoff framing thing. Like, you know, and then I got to reference that Bill Hicks bit of like, look, if you're truly pro-life, you go pick at a funeral, not an abortion clinic. But 
um, things like that. Like, so that's, I, so I think we have a similar path in that way that like, that's kind of how I came into it. Cause I came into it from, you know, like the, the punk rock, not as a musical style, but as a, um, like an ethos, like, like right. a, a set of values and, and systems that naturally is, is going to trend both critical thinking, but also towards progressive because you want, well, I, I, I think, Look, Michael Graves, woman that to list off all the fucking conservative punk rockers because there's like five of them. Right. And like, I get it, but it, it, the point of fact is that like there's too much, too many people advocating that side of it as, uh, as, uh, pushing that forth as, if, as if that's the prevailing opinion and it isn't. What what, again, what I actually think happened with most punk rockers, if we're honest, is they depoliticized in time. I well, mean, like, exactly. Well, look at, and I think that our, our, our buddy Jason talked to him about Green Day. <laughs> yeah. yeah right yeah and, and like that's a separate conversation and a valuable one but my point of fact is that it helped it helped shape my political ethos to the fact that they used to be like uh myspace or friendster or one of these goddamn things mp3.com who the fuck knows uh i put my uh <laughs> my political beliefs were fugazi and my religious views were devo and i felt really good about that as far as like you know in the olden days of like oh look at this clever bio i wrote for myself isn't this cool uh but that it's very true. And so the fact that I've had, you know, the fact that I know people from Fugazi through playing music and like, and the show and, and people from, from Devo and I'm able to have this artistic exchange with them and talk to them and uh, talk about their values and what made them who they are, you know, like things that they've dealt with over time, et cetera, et cetera. For me, that puts it all into a context that I think is really, really important beyond liking the music. You know, that brings me to uh, an interesting period in the 90s and kind of my childhood. I think you're a little bit older than me, but like um, the origins of new metal are fascinating to me. Um, and I think this is a study in that tendency of what you said about the gatekeepers to go safer and safer all the time. Even though it was a commercial product with major musicians on it, with major labels, the Judgment Night soundtrack was Judgment kind Night, yeah. of, it was kind of huge and like taking two arguably semi-marginal pop genres that were very racialized yeah. and putting them in direct contact and dialogue with each other in a productive way. And yet over time, you know, instead of getting, I mean, in some ways, you can argue it led to the direct popularity of bands like Rage Against the Machine, but it also led to the awful new metal of the early aughts, like directly, undeniably. From you have that to corn to corn to right. right. So, so two things. First of all, I'm I, I was born in Modesto, California, the Central mm -hmm. Valley, which culturally has more more in common with like Kansas. Than it does with San Francisco or Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, I, I I do unfortunately know that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyone that knows knows. <laughs> I mean, from Modesto, like things that are worthwhile that that I've come out there that you may know of, it's, you know, Lacey and Scott Peterson, right? Gary Condit, the murdering congressman. Oh, well, he's been exonerated now, so I can't <laughs> I can't I can't say that. Uh, the band Granddaddy and George Lucas went to high school there. American Graffiti, and then me, and that's about it. That's like and where some that wine. <laughs> and some decent wine, you know. I used to spin donuts. It's not in Napa Valley wine, but it's not bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all right. You know, it's it's you could do worse. And that's and that's I guess that's a, that's my that's so the actual slogan is water, wealth, contentment, health. But it should be Modesto. You could do worse. 
<laughs> but uh, the two things. So, so earlier you touched upon uh, the Georgia thing and being like, oh, by the time people cut around to like neutral milk, it's like, oh, fuck. All right. Well, we're we're already over that and kind of like maybe coming back to it, but kind of already over that. Like I was very against pavement for stupid reasons because they were from the next town over. And I was like, I mean, my favorite band was black flag. What am I going to say? Like I, I, I was, I was like, Oh no, that stuff sucks. And then later on, I'm like, ah, fuck, it's really good. God damn it. Uh, and I had to realize that to I say, was, those first three pavement albums. I'll fight you over. <laughs> well, no, I love them now, but it, when I was a kid, I was like, no, cause my, you know, it's like, I'm getting into like the birthday party. You know what I mean? Oh so yeah. Like, yeah. Man, it, was, it was like, what is this? Ah. Um, but I didn't li- also live that far from from uh, Bakersfield. So like when Corn came out, I'm like, of fucking course they're from Bakersfield. Of course they are. That is mm-hmm. the most Bakersfield thing that ever happened. And I also happened to be like making records and touring around the time the new metal came out. But I was like, wow, this is taking all the rage, the like the righteous indignation and rage from all the things I love and making it directionless and terrible. And it's taking the worst elements of multiple genres and putting them as a melange that I could not have foreseen in my worst possible nightmare. Oh, also, it's the most popular genre now. Wow. Where's my gun? Put it to my head. I mean, you think about it, and it's inarticulate, depoliticized rage um, that eventually... (laughs) My favorite is when by the time you get to P.O.D. and it's like, so depoliticized you can hide christian rock in it um Uh, i know yeah that's so it's like that's where we're at and yet there's an interesting trajectory when you go back to this kind of groundbreaking moment on a kind of ephemeral i mean i guess we should also be honest in the 90s movie soundtracks were not ephemeral they're a major part of the industry but um this experimental movie soundtrack they're my judgment night now yeah, I, I mean, I mean Onyx Biohazard, a, Sir Mix a Lot and Mud Honey. I mean, like, there's a lot of like wild ass tracks on that one. Yeah, fuck yeah, suck about Judgment Night. I'm in. <laughs> but it was, yeah. but the thing is, like, uh, again, culturally, you have to like for the younger listeners, especially some of these like aggressive and mad at nothing or, you know, fuck you mom, which is, was, was like what my friend of mine always calls that kind of music Mm -hmm. is um, because they were absolutely terrified, not a public enemy necessarily, but of, of like what happened if if an NWA had a public enemy swag, right. Or like, what if they actually got mad at the right people? So this is like, you know, fuck the police, but like writ large a hundred times. And that led to like, well, we need to goddamn do something about this. I, I, th- I think Rage Against Machine, even though it was made into a joke, and I, I think rightfully made into a joke, honestly, by the yeah. late 90s, right. was what they were afraid of. Like, you yeah, got... Exactly. It, what if, you got, what if, what if uh, we had a, The Clash, but it was Rage Against the Machine? Right. You got, you got, uh, you got white suburbanites reading Angela Davis off of the liner notes of a major right. rock album. Exactly. Like, which, which as much as you know, I haven't heard in years, but ostensibly I fuck with the first album. Uh there's a couple good riffs on the, like the second record. Not really my thing, but respect the hustle and like like look, man, that's like one or two steps away from like some of my favorite shit. You know, like say what you will about Tom Morello and his fucking cornball ass running around, like, you know. 
his super liberal super liberal advocacy later yeah yeah hanging out <laughs> bill maher and like whatever okay fine but basically dude managed to take like shit that andy gill from gang of four and agata from melt banana did mm-hmm. and turn it into a fucking arena rock style get the fuck out of here you know like like again that guy's cornball as hell but if i as a guitar player as a musician if i ever met that dude i'd be like man respect like and what? then i would probably drop like three references that he'd be like oh fuck yeah that's awesome now granted now he's all into like pete seeger and all that ah, okay fine plenty of people doing that but sure i actually, I don't know what was the question no no, no we're talking no, about no, it's just it was yeah. just we were talking about what the what the industry may have been actually afraid of and why it moved to more right. aimless and it was a similar trajectory if we look at what happened with metal to glam metal if like if you listen to Oh, yeah. early metal like early metals basically like british and american working class people being very pissed off post-vietnam like oh, absolutely yeah look at judas priest right uh look look at look at like you know like the cl- the class-based stuff that was like not like hey we're class warriors it was they were talking about like the world at large look at something like <laughs> iron maiden right and people like uh what what is it uh you know singing along to an Iron Maiden song that's literally about colonial expansion and the extermination of Native Americans. And who's playing? The Braves. <laughs> you know, it's like that's we live in irony poisoning time poison times that people don't realize that. But then you have you know uh like all the more like nihilistic side of things, which you know I love Slayer, but like Slayer is definitely like you know what kind of message are they doing? Like okay, nothing. You know, I nothing. mean, I did see them. It's not their the trajectory is actually somewhat interesting because I associate them with uh, another band like that, like Jackal, who Jackal with Y. Yep. <laughs> the, the the ending of Jackal for me was in two thousand and five. I'm at this obscure. Uh, it's a harsh festival. joke for you. You yeah. behind the chainsaw, the musical instrument. No, I'm about to talk about this. I, I was in, I was <laughs> in a, uh, I was in an obscure, like kind of, nah, um, music festival in the center of Georgia, and mm. it's like driving and crying and all the southern rock bands that I hate even more than oh, yeah. six music. And actually, then all of one, sudden, one, of, one of the comes uh, on. one of the last shows. Chainsaw. That's awesome. So one one of the last shows we played. Um, pre-covid i uh, was in austin and it was it was on those places that there's there's um like main venue and there's like a kind of like the outside stage like whatever so we were on the, the outside stage and um and, and the main stage was driving and crying which i was, I was oh, like wow <laughs> and like we've been in situ i've been in situations like that over the years i mean like sleater kinney played the first avenue and we played seventh street entry and we got to like you know see it and hang out with them and stuff like that and, and that's cool but i kind of i like those moments of just mission because i'm like when in the name of fuck am i ever going to be interact with a driving and crying fan let alone driving and crying where i'm like okay cool what are these guys about and not like i'm not saying i was like a convert or anything along those lines but i was like ah you know whatever we're all doing the same shit you guys are making way more money on it but it's all right it's chill um but that has nothing to do with jackal with a y and dude playing a chainsaw which well i mean it has everything to do with jackal with the y because (laughs) i mean like because this is uh, these festivals where a lot of a lot of music comes to be born but it's also where a lot of it goes to like in its dotage for for lack of a better term and talk, um, talk to Jason about it, but I call it the festival industrial complex. No, <laughs> you know, one thing I want to talk about though, I I did I did promise my listeners that we were going to talk about what this is like post COVID, and we started. There. Oh, sure. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. My bad. Yeah, but we, we we've been on this <laughs> weird <laughs> tangent. Um, <laughs> why are they talking about Jackal? I wanted. To- <laughs> 
I, I normally come to this for the Marxism bar, not reminiscing about hair metal bands tuning a chainsaw. What does it um, have to do with leftist politics again? Yeah. Um, but yeah, but there is there was a sense of like different groups of people really meeting in these areas that sure. I think COVID's finished killing, but has been dying for a while. Um, yeah. Well, that's the communitarian efforts, right? So, so I was talking about uh, to the revolu- revolutionary tracks guys, to Marcus and, and Karthik about like the idea of the, the benefit comp as the communitarian effort, where you all uh, put put in together to work towards a common goal. Perfect example: our Kona Neutron, the Secret Friends, our label guy uh, Rainier Franz runs this you know this label, Learning Curve Records. He had a heart attack and got a heart stint like late last year and so i put together this compilation for him that was ostensibly a benefit that you know full well it's like well it's not this is gonna bring in tons of money because it already was a gofundme which like we can talk about like an old little concept of gofundmes and how those have been naturalized in space of an actual healthcare plan that affects everyone but uh it was as much knowing that he and this is talking about someone's like a tireless worker for diy and like underserved bands bringing them to the world at large that for him to be able to just see the like hey this 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 legitimately cool comp if i do say so myself uh was put together for you because we love you and we want you to feel that love well it also happened that because uh this happened during COVID times that like it, that was the impetus for some bands that basically have been sitting around you know with their ostensible dick and their ostensible hands staring at the wall being like well i don't know really what to do right now like we can't make a record you know should we make records you know we can't tour or whatever that provided value and community effort towards a common goal of helping a dude that is fucking awesome like like uh, almost objectively awesome uh and so the compilation especially the benefit comp as the communitarian effort i think is undervalued because people and, and like you know i'm the first one to be like man if you got a benefit comp in the san francisco bay area like I can tell you half the bands are going to be on it. Michael Franti is going to be on one of them. You're going to have Jello doing something like, you know, and it's like, <laughs> it's uncynical to say that, but we think of the beats of it as like, okay, these are the certain expectations and things along those lines, but genuinely communitarian efforts still happen within music. It's just, it's super niche and it's usually to raise money for shit, frankly, which is fucked up. That's a fucked up. Right, like I mean, shallow North Dakota. There's there's this band, shallow North Dakota, and the well, the one fellow, the drummer, um, really fucking cool guy, and uh, you know, just had had a bad run of health, passed away from cancer, and there's like a benefit comp for him. There's like a benefit quadruple split thing for him, and like so, there's been this outpouring of love from these uh, from different musicians that he's touched within his life, uh, but he. You didn't get to see that because he fucking died, but his family gets to like feel the love of it and feel this communitarian effort. And the fact that like all these bands that are the different parts of this compilation get to like vibe with each other and be like, wow, we're doing something cool. We're doing it for this guy that like never going to be in Rolling Stone, but whose music touched all of these people. I despise the idea of having to do it after someone's like gone or like, why did it take Rainier having a heart attack? for us to like make a cool comp for him and like, let him know how, and, but that's, that's how we've been trained to think now. Yeah. Everything's the hot take industrial complex. That's overuse the industrial complex. Well, I mean, but it, it does build community. 
tragedy does build community, right? I mean, Think is- about us getting our, our dicks kicked into the dirt in 2016, right? Right. Has the American left ever gotten a bigger fucking, you know, kick in the pants there? Sorry to overuse the kicking analogies now, but like, no, because we were like, Christ, we got to build something. We don't build something. We're fucked here, and we're probably still going to be fucked. But I was about to say we 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 probably are fucked. We probably still are, and it's not that we. And and now we just rather tear everything down because it's easier to tear shit down, and it feels better. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, the the, podcast, whatever. uh, I mean, the 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 creative destruction part of this thing is getting a lot more weighted on destruction lately. But um, I I do think. Sorry, and I threw like seventeen things there, but 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 the point of fact is uh, talking about. On this community thing, though, because the community bonding over tragedy and marketing is, unfortunately, when I was working in the political publishing industry, is what kept more than one uh, imprint afloat. Of course, right? Like the the like people think of it as as, like for the hate click thing, right? But like hate clicks were hate books before. Mm -hmm. It was like. You know, he's it's it's fraught with landmines talk about Al Franken now, but you know, Rush Limbaugh is a big fat idiot. <laughs> like, like that was great. I mean, that was the equivalent of like like a, a, a dunking tweet back in the day, except for it was in book form and there were jokes and et cetera, et cetera. And it it's not like anything you have is new, it's just the avenues and models for for but, it to hit people differently the incentives are there though i mean I, i'm going to talk about a i don't know if you knew michael brooks and michael brooks was uh i wish i did mine, I, I know he was a friend of mine yeah i i know i now know like a half dozen people that were like close to him and in his inner circle but i will i will say this and i actually i'm going to give you an excuse because i never talked about this when he died i only knew him from the work right mm. but when he died I was almost as affected as if like an actual friend had died because that's how much he had touched me because I am, I love podcasts. I love, um, you know, progressive media, like talk shows or whatever, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so on. And I've got a lot of nuanced views. They aren't all um, doctrinaire leftists, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. But he was such a unique talent with a ability to communicate that I was so deeply affected i had to like i stop what i do and i was like i gotta go take like a long walk right now because mm-hmm. this is fucked up like the world lost somebody important and i don't even know the fucking guy and i know a bunch right. of you bunch of you do but like that's how i felt right because i just knew that it was like sometimes you just you hear something like that and I'm like oh like when mark linkus of sparkle horse died i don't know mark oh linkus, yeah that like, was that oh, hit, actually oh, it, it's, it, it was rough in that you know I remember having this really heartfelt conversation with Ben and Doug Lane and JG Michaels, all of which JG uh, had introduced me to Michael Brooks. He'd come on my show. We'd met in person a couple of times and became friends. Um, but the kind of horrifying realization that I had when I was talking to Doug, as I looked over to Doug and I was like, is what happened to Mark Fisher is any indication we're going to make killing off of this. Ugh. Yeah. Um, because that's gonna it's gonna drive the community together and people are gonna buy his book. And unfortunately, his book was not selling very well Before until that. he died. Oh god. And this so, is how we're trained. All right. So I'm gonna do the thing where you say something important and pointing, and I turn it around to me. But trust me, there's a point to it that uh, I was in this band household gods. It was myself, uh Dave Powell from Slint, 
uh, LKN, Lauren K. Newman, who is uh, somewhat unheralded except for regionally in Portland, and Vern Rumsey of Unwound. And Vern had done a lot, had done done some things since Unwound had split up, but not, nothing had really hit. And Household Gods was like, it's, you know, like whatever. It's a fucking weird ass, bizarre, you know, freak factor nine, like thing nobody knew was happening that existed. Reaching people, touching people, et cetera, et cetera. For Vern, that was great because it had been basically 20 years since anybody gave a fine fuck about what he had done. And we're talking about one of the best bass players in in like indie rock, as far as I'm concerned. Like, and believe me, I fucking know. Uh, but he died. He died in, uh, it was a year ago, uh, early August. Guess what happened with that record? Sales through the roof. And this is what I'm talking about when I talk about like celebrate people when they're fucking here. Cause he knew a little bit. Cause he would get like, you know, you know, whether it's like nice messages from people from like around the world about like, man, I really love the new record. God, this is so great. I hope you guys make another one. Cool. Cool. He, he got to feel that. And it, it really like uh, bolstered him and helped him. But you know, what, what is the, what is the thing that like made that record sell the most? Somebody fucking dying. The second person out of four. Might I add, because because uh, Lauren died actually before the record came out, which is even a bigger tragedy. But I think about this a lot and not just in terms of like me, but like in terms of like, how can I do a better job of celebrating people while they're here and letting them know I appreciate them? And like that's turning into like weird, like normalized random affirmations kind of thing <laughs> where someone's like send like a nice text message to someone and be like, the fuck is this okay cool thanks that's awesome i think you're awesome too but like there's something in our culture that is rotten and that is dark and it is jacked up that makes us only really think about the intrinsic value that someone provides art or otherwise to our lives we don't really appreciate it until they're gone yeah, I'm guilty. I, I I actually was thinking about this because I got the Household Gods album. Um, oh, did you? Uh, awesome. Yeah, okay, cool. but but because I've been on around, I, like I used to go see on around when they would come to Georgia. Oh. Um, when they go to one Atlanta. of my favorite bands of all time, and one of the reasons yeah, I played music. Them. So yeah. <laughs> but then I then I was like, wait, I mean, but I got it because Vern died, and then and then I'm like, oh wow, Lauren's dead too, and then I'm then I'm like. And I didn't even notice the other two members in the band. And I'm like, oh, I know Conan. I didn't even put it together. That's awesome. That's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but it proves your point. Like it, it, it's this, it's this morbid way in which when this communal stuff comes up, we often don't know how to manifest it except in tragedy. Like, so going back to the Michael Brooks point, right? Like the thing, <laughs> something that, <laughs> that I noticed with him, I was like, wow, I don't want to hear, I'm not going to read a single reply to this because I'm going to say this. Like, I feel like Michael Brooks almost had the Howard Stern thing that he had ability to communicate that went beyond his peers and connected with people in a certain way that you just don't see that every day. No, you don't, you know? And like, I, I, I love Sam Cedar. Like I'm the Sam Cedar of noise rock. You know, I've been doing this for fucking ever and it's gradually gotten better. You probably were on air America at one point. No. <laughs> yeah, I probably was. Everyone else was right. <laughs> <laughs> but like in the same way that that dude's just been fucking doing the work his entire lifetime. And like, it connects with people, people check in, check out, et cetera, et cetera. But every once in a while you run into someone like Michael where it's like, fuck, 
And so, so it's what, when someone like that goes, like when like a Bill Hicks or, um, you know, Kurt Cobain or, or, or whatever, um, you feel it, you feel it. And, and like, <laughs> look, man, I, I, <laughs> I lost my mom in uh, like late spring, early summer. I lost my bandmate of like 10 fucking years and like someone I consider more of a brother than my actual brother in August. Lost Vern the August before that. Lauren the December before that. There's been like basically not more than a six month period where I haven't lost someone in my own life. Uh, and sometimes some stuff just fucking hits you. You know, like when yeah. they, David Bowie died. It was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, Bowie. Bo. I know. Fuck. I know. This is one of these weird parasocial relationships, and I'm usually the person ranting against them. And of course, I had no relationship to David Bowie except for seeing him live once as a kid when he toured with yeah. Nine Inch Nails. Um, oh yeah, which, the uh, out, outsider, outsider. Outside, yeah, which, outsider. yeah, which I had to scrape. I'm afraid of Americans. Lung, right. by the way, talk about music blogs don't exist anymore. Lung does an incredible cover of mm. I'm Afraid of Americans. So if you want to hear a awesome latter period David Bowie cover done by a badass band that's cello and drums and badass vocals, go seek out Lung, I'm Afraid of Americans. Also, well too true to this day. Go ahead, David Bowie story. But, yes. but, but you know, and David Bowie wasn't that young, but it was um, because my now ex-wife was struggling with cancer and because two of my friends had died from uh, drug overdoses and, you know, in the prior year, uh-huh. David Bowie and Leonard Cohen dying back to back was a like, it was this resonance because I associate it with all these other deaths with people who were close to me. And yeah. I think it's, you I think feel it's, it. You feel yeah, like you feel knew it. them. You feel like, like, oh, yeah, you know, that's Uncle Leonard. Like, we would go hang out at his record and fucking, he would talk about, uh, uh, you know, Serge Gain- Gainsbourg or whatever. Yeah. Uh, like, you feel like, like, what David Bowie was like, I mean, as someone that, um, you know, is sitting here in a fucking ostentatious looking jacket talking to you on the internet right now, like, David Bowie is like the template for like growing and changing and um, challenging yourself and doing different stuff and not being afraid to fail, not being afraid to be like, oh yeah, remember when I did that record? All right, yeah, that one. Yeah, we're really just not going to talk about Tim Machine. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. We don't we don't speak of Tim Machine. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. Taking it back to your point, like you feel this affinity to the point of like, wow, that's somebody that was important in my life that I never met. But but it also is interesting. I think there's this two thing. I don't think that parasocial relationship is bad. I don't want people to think that I think it is. Um, but I do think it's weird how we're trained to view this often in light of these creators and and death. And how for a lot of people, for example, if Bowie hadn't released that album right before he died, kind of, and it seems like he knew yeah. he was dying when he released oh, the album. He, yes, so we so, would have not talked about him until he was dead. Right, exactly. So, 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 so I had Tony Visconti on, which to me is mm-hmm. a high point of proton controversial. Uh, but he like literally made everyone sign NDAs and stuff. And it's pretty clear from what I know that he knew the end was coming and he made Black Star. And Black Star is like, I'm like, fucking A, man, that's how to go out. Like, not just make a record, but make a record about the thing that's happening. And actually have it be like really kick ass. Please. Yes. But of course it would. 
Of fucking course, David Bowie would do that. Would you expect anything else? Because that is that dude was was thoughtful in a way that uh, many people are, but few people are celebrated for. Yeah, and and and, and, I, and you know, I'm not saying he's like a god or anything along those lines. He's a, he's a human with flaws like anyone else, and like whatever. I'm sure a bunch of people want to like drag through it, but like I'm not about like you know saints and sinners. I'm not about like you know. Um, gods and, and devils at, at all but talk about like you know how to live a creative life like fucking hey yeah i mean and actually i think about 2016 is this weird kind of nadir for music because um you also get that you get the exact same phenomenon with leonard cohen apparently doing two albums as he's dying and knows it yeah like, and is a frail man like right. to be this is not like the leonard cohen of you know the you know don't go home with your heart on like you know <laughs> we'll just charitably say like party drugged out, like running around, like, you know, expiring Nick cave. Uh, yeah, and it's, um, like, you know, Suzanne, you know, like young man with a guitar at the Chelsea hotel either, but owning it and making something that's like, yeah. Like you want it darker. Be like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> right. I mean, so and, and then the album that came out that was unreleased from his, like that he was recording from his own poems that came out after it was also oh, another way, gut stab. Here's <laughs> some other shit that's going to fucking blow your mind. Like, but, but, but it is interesting because it's hard to imagine how an artist could have that career now. Like it's, it's so, okay. The, you hit on an important point because it, if it is, it would be something like, like a, uh, a Lord situation. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, yeah, the art's there and the music's there, but they just happened to hit this exact moment in time where the rules were like this, this, and this, and like, you know, the fucking moon is in the house of Aquarius, whatever the fuck, that like this all transpired that people were able to, they were given the opportunity to connect with it. They were given something worthy of connection to, and all of the other ancillary elements were not working uh, at Discord with it. And that's, well, no one on really likes to hear, but that's like you know the the Jeff Goldblum Jurassic Park chaos theory part of it too. And that is, I will say this as an artist: when I became more concerned with the journey being the destination, life became a lot easier for me. Where I just I like I like doing this, man. I like making records. I like touring. I like writing songs. I like recording songs. Like I, I, I love. It's like the uh, Richard Feynman, the physicist. Like the pleasure of finding things out. And, yeah, and I, it's, no, it's be curious. It's like be curious, not judgmental. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was thinking about this the other day because I did this mathematical experiment with my students, and this is an interesting experiment that you can do. Um, where you talk about, let's assume that ninety-five percent of your success. Is hard work and innovation. All right. Sure. Let's then species assume that. Assumption, but yeah, let's yeah, assume. it's a totally specious <laughs> assumption. But but it's high for a reason because it still illustrates the point. Yeah. Let's assume five percent of your success is luck, and let's run the math on that. So if we run the math on that, out of a hundred chances, you uh, you'll have ten people successful out of a hundred. Only two of them will the decisive factor be hard work and um, and uh, innovation, even if 95% of the reason they are fa- everyone is famous is hard work. Yep. And since everybody worked hard to get to where they are, 
they're not going to acknowledge that eight out of 10 times it was just luck because they have survivor bias. And so, and, and of course, we all know that me saying 95% being hard work is absurdly high. Yeah, that, and that's <laughs> almost objectively untrue. And I say that as <laughs> other people's words, not mine, as one of the most hard workers that, that are in my, my world, right? But hard work itself is part of the puzzle. That, that, that gets you to the door. <laughs> that gets you right. to the door. <laughs> which, which is, you know, sort of my, my thing about like capitalist society, even if you assumed that everybody that, that, that this wasn't rigged. Yeah. All right. It's still mostly luck. Yeah. I mean, that's assuming well, I, it's not rigged. Absolutely. Right? So, okay. Did Alan Thicke's son <laughs> like have a leg up on other people? Uh, yeah. I would say he did. But also, right. he happened to like come apart a thing that culturally there was some fucking like reptilian need for some sleazy fucking uh, ridiculously misogynistic song. That also, like, ostensibly steals a hook from a much better song, you know, uh, 30 years earlier. And, and, like, 40 years earlier. Whatever it was. Anyway. There's a long um, tradition of that, too. But Yeah, and there is a long tradition. <laughs> very, why the exact, oh, is there? Huh? Is there a long tradition of white people stealing the music of black people? Huh, all right. Let's get a, let's and get and a, making it popular after the artist is mostly dead and cannot benefit yeah. from it? <laughs> but, but, but I'm, I mean... I and mean, I hesitate to even say the guy's name, but like that guy, like having a worldwide number one hit. I don't think he like does all of those factors. The guy, who's his dad? Alan Thick. You know, like okay, well, guess what? You like were you know like, and I hate to use like the wokeism phrasing, but you were born born on third base, basically, and and that's one of the worst things about like wokest discourse if you will is the fact that it's all the more depressing because some of it's right yeah there, but there are there are stuff when they're talking about privilege where i'm like you know you have a point you just you're yeah. just over expanding the category <laughs> yeah you have a point but you're just a fucking asshole using it to weaponize something to like to like uh, make yourself feel better and to avoid talking about class often and and, and Again, but by that same token, a lot of creative folks, they think they think it, you know, some people fall into like the first of all, yes, work hard. Right. But hard work alone doesn't doesn't get you results. If you enjoy the work that will make you I'm not am I a happy person. I don't know. I'm a fulfilled person. What's happy, happy. <laughs> In this economy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the bull quote, by the way. <laughs> but but like, if you enjoy, you know, the journey being the destination, great. So if you get the destination, awesome. You know, like I I never it never conceived that like the level to which people have responded to the podcast, Protonic Reversal. I, I I never even you know it's like of course everyone that starts a podcast thinks that they're going to be oh well I could be the Mark Marin of XXX. Okay, cool. Yeah, whatever. But then you you hit the brick wall uh, of that not being the case, which which is much in the same way of like you have the best band in the world and you play to like one drunk dude and the bartender at the bar. And you're like, okay, here's your here's your heaping helping of uh, your own hubris coming back at you. Um, 
I'm I'm legitimately I talked about this. I can't remember if this was on a show or not. So I'm just going to repeat myself. Sorry that I've had a lot of people that now come to me for advice. Hey, I want to start a show. I want to start a podcast. Okay, cool. So, you know, what do you want to know? And like, I you always just focus on the content. Do something interesting. Make the show that you want to hear that does not yet exist. And I still I still say all of that. And I always say, like, by the way, don't do the stuff that I do, because the stuff that I do is like built off of like years and years of like growth. Use the tools that are available to you and do so in a way that is not disadvantageous to the creation of the something that is special and cool that does not exist. When people tell you be more like things that already exist, fucking ignore them because they're wrong. Because nothing, very little is created, unless you want to be the Dane Cook of podcasting, like very little is created by being a hack. And that's hack work. And I also, yeah. I'm a big fan of communitarian effort for creation. Much in the same way that like I've had bands over the years that like have come to me for uh, advice on their careers, which like basically do the opposite of what I did. You'll be great. But uh, in all seriousness, like, you know, being like, hey, what should we do with this record contract? I'm like, well, OK, like, let's let's break that down, et cetera, et cetera. And, and even just more like simple things of just like direction and ethos. It's communitarian effort. So I'm shocked. Uh, so so it's all right. So I, I'm shocked by the, <laughs> that doesn't happen with the music interview podcast world, which is a bunch of fucking uh, Randy and libertarians all fucking rugged individualizing themselves into obscurity. Whereas my foray into this world of like, you know, for lack of a better term, the progressive podcasting sphere, leftist podcasting, et cetera, whatever it is, I'm blown away by the amount of um, camaraderie and cross pollination that there is in support for each other. And that's coming as a punk rocker, like as, as again, as a punk rocker, not in musical genre, but as an ethos, that's huge to me because that's how you move the needle. You don't move the needle. Like the idea of there being like, you know, the captain America or whatever, um, that's going to, you know, the Superman that's going to like save everything. That's fucking absurd. We all have to be a little bit of Superman all the time. And if we aren't, nothing will change. If we choose to be, cynical and if we choose to go to our our darker urges and like just hey check out this idiot as our raison d'etre we're not building anything and and it if i fucking love tearing shit down tearing shit down is awesome but it takes a lot more effort to build something up and and like what i want to see is i want to see people focus on building and and also don't worry about what's going on over here man run your own race mm-hmm. run your own race I have seen so many political podcasts actually go down that 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 road. And I actually used to talk about it with uh, Jason. And I would, you know, we would talk about the rap beef model of, pod, of political podcast creation. And it pays the, off the, that, what, the, the rap beef, the rap beef model of political podcast <laughs> okay. creation. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Except, you know, except podcasters don't shoot each other that often. Um, <laughs> I say that when I was actually listening about half the podcasters and leftists that I worked with on the Vampire Castle piece the right. other day, and I was like, "Wait, oh, four yeah. of those people are dead!" Like, <laughs> so, so talking about my musical discography right now. By the way, <laughs> hey, let me tell you, <laughs> right? Um, but, but, but it is interesting how many people I've seen chase that dragon to try to do. Even yeah. the even the copy their own success, and yes, 
and totally destroy their their credibility. Um, and often, usually, their brand eventually. And, and I say credibility and brand separately for a reason, but one does actually eventually affect the other. So it's, I, I, you know, I, I tell people, like, if you're going to do a podcast, don't do it as your primary job unless you're already making the money to do it as your primary job. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Every motherfucker in 2021 quitting their job to be a band. I'm like, you realize you can't tour, right? Right. Like, yeah. Like, you exactly. realize that? <laughs> Um, be happy with moderate growth and yeah. like figure out why you're doing it other than to be famous for its own sake. Yeah. Um, because right now let, let, let's be honest about fame right now. Like this is the cheapest fame has ever been. Oh, oh yeah, dude. This is shit. This shit is straight pick and save. You kidding me? Like, I mean, like it's yeah. Oh, like I, I man, I had I had this dude I've known for like 20 years that was like, hey, congrats on having a successful podcast. And I had to like fight myself to not at least respond in the most cynical way possible of, of basically being like, Yeah, king of the dollar store, you know, like, right, exactly because like, he meant success. A successful, yeah, successful podcast makes less than minimum wage, guys. Yeah, like, <laughs> do you want to know how much this makes on like a, a hourly basis? Because I've worked it out because I'm a fucking masochist, and like, yeah, yeah. The only it, thing I actually do that pays less than podcasting is when I take on extra duties as a school teacher. Literally, right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, I, and that so that's the model, and that's where Steve Albini kind of comes in the fact of like your creative venture shouldn't be what you use to support yourself. So on. And, and there's an ethos, and I'm not saying that's my ethos, but is is a ethos and ethos. Anyway, whatever. Um, I think that you know. All right, so let, let's string credulity here. And say the movie night extravaganza becomes like the, the biggest podcast in America, right? Yeah. It becomes okay. Chapo 2.0, but for movies. Yeah, sure. But it's about mo- but movies this time. By the way, Stranger Shit has happened and it is a good enough show for that to happen. So that's I so for me, that would be funny because it wouldn't change what I would do at all. Because it's for a show. It's it fuck it's it's for a very brilliant brainchild, and he did a thing where he made the movie show that he wanted to hear that didn't exist. That I was like, "Hey, congratulations! You made the movie show that I wanted to hear that didn't exist too." And the fact that I get to you know wander in and interject my bullshit is fantastic for me because I don't have to do any of the other nonsense with it, and I can just add some value. Great. I'm and that's that's almost like it's like joining someone's band that's already like, you know, doing something cool and you don't have to like book the shows or or stuff along those lines. But let's say that like movie night extravaganza became like the biggest show in the world. A lot of times you hear these and I love hearing about like uh, podcast beef is so Mm -hmm. astounding. And again, I put that into the explain this to a founding father category of like ridiculous (laughs) shit. Uh, But I mean, I've seen people on on like a magnitudes less of of what uh, some of the the more bigger success stories have been tear themselves apart like wild fucking dogs at the first twinge of success, which was like, is that why you were doing this? Because fucking go be like an investment banker, <laughs> you know, like that'll make you some if you if you're looking to make money. Great. If you're looking to something cool. And if you're looking to do something that's even better, important, that's a different story entirely. If you get rewarded for it, congratulations. You're like that 1% of 1%. 
that the hard work, her hot, the hard work, the luck, the chaos theory, all that came together that the fucking lightning bolt hit you and be cognizant of that and be altruistic about that and, and uh, be of service to people as much as you can. And, and I don't I, like, I consider, you know, like who the fuck am I? <laughs> some, fucking, some, some crazy whack dude with like, a goofy name who plays some like relatively uncommercial rock music, although not compared to Jason, frankly. Uh, and you know, runs a podcast. that's like a big deal for like a small amount of people. Cool. Well, fine. But I enjoy what I do. It, I love it. Like it, it, it it's the kind of thing that like the rest of the days where it's like just compounding mediocre misery and, life encroaching upon you and like making you feel wanting and needy and terrible all the time. I'm like, Oh, right. I got this other thing that I can do that makes all that go away for a little while. And that, and the fact that any of that, any part of it gives anyone some modicum of enjoyment to do the same. So, right. Awesome. Well, um, I think we, we, we touched on a, a bunch of stuff. Uh, people should go look up your work over at Protonic Reversal and go listen to the album you can't tour with. <laughs> listen to it on Bandcamp. Yeah, NeutronFriends.Bandcamp.com. Um, listen to it on Bandcamp so, like, so people can make a little bit of change for the work. Yeah. Um, so support on Bandcamp, uh, whether it's myself or whoever, because it, it actually uh, – more of it goes to the artist than like Spotify or iTunes or any of the rest of that. It's, it's yeah. the most artist friendly platform. Yeah. I don't even know. Like iTunes downloads are. Yeah. I mean, what, knows? what do people fuck? What is it today? I don't know. Like, and, and like, honestly, it's not it about makes charts on impossible to make any sense of now. Actually. Okay, it's but... ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, like it, it means nothing. It means less than nothing. Like if people want to listen on Spotify, but I don't, Please, like, just if anyone's listening, at all fantastic. Like, I'm, I'm mildly astounded that anybody touches uh, that that anything you do in this life affects anyone else at all. Especially in the again the fire hose world that we live in, where it's just everything all the time, always. And it's an honor, by the way, uh, to, to to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you um, for coming on. I wasn't quite sure what we we're going to talk about, and it's okay because we talked about literally everything. I worked out just yeah. fine. <laughs> That's. <laughs> Kind of what I do. Um, it, it's a I've little bit. It. <laughs> it's a little bit uh, political, and it's a little bit an interview show where I just let people do what they kind of want to do. And the reason, the reason that is, honestly, is uh, you want to talk about Mark Maron for a minute, or, or, or Howard sure. Stern, actually, in his in his yeah. in his late age. I, I, I like them both, and I especially like. <laughs> the the late stage Howard Stern that most people are still unaware of is fantastic because that shows like and, and this is when I get into the cancel culture with no type of atonement that it's like, yeah, you know what, like the, you know, throwing the baloney at the woman's uh, rear ends and whatever. Like, yeah, it's, I was never into that, you know, whatever. But like that's a dude that has done serious work on himself and has managed to actually become better. At what yeah. he does because of it, but he's also in the freaking wall garden. It's all wall garden shit, right? Um, you can't. You, it's a wall garden is unfortunately super dying. But I mean, it's it's interesting. 
because people don't know about this turn. Like if you compare Don Don Imus to Howard Stern and they were roughly Gosh. comparable in the eighties and nineties. Yeah, yeah. Uh they're opposite trajectories almost. Yeah. Um whereas if you listen to a Stern interview now, it's like a Mark Marin interview, and what he has learned to do is to talk a lot when he needs to talk a lot and shut up when he needs to shut up and let people express themselves fairly organically. Yep. And I think one of the problems that I've had with a lot of left podcasts as of late is they become very rote. Like, you know, we're on the left book tour and we got to get this article out for Jacobin and we're going to have five points Yeah, and you know exactly what they're going to be and nothing interesting comes out of that. So, I mean, and uh, frankly, as a standpoint of a person who really cares about ideas, uh, don't use that as a substitute for reading their book. Go read their book, and most. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. By the way, everyone, read all these books. I'm, I'm totally talking right. about. That. Right. Um, <laughs> um, no, and I agree. I, I, I but I you know. Agree. Yeah. But uh, but all that said, um, I find it interesting when you just let people go with a broad spectrum of yeah. concerns because stuff comes up that no one foresees. And that's sure. usually the most interesting part of the conversation. Right. Um, <laughs> I, it, well, and, and something, so t- to that, to yes and that point, as they say in improv comedy, uh, something I found with Protonic is like some of the coolest moments happen specifically because it is the kind of conversation that is meant to feel to like you forget there's an audience almost. Right. You're, you're, you're just, you're talking, you're going deep into it. It's like talking to someone that's, that's like, oh, okay, cool. And then, yeah, we're talking about the, oh man, I've never thought about it, you know, this way or whatever, this and that. And you go down these crazy avenues and streets. And that's what's so cool about the forum. And I say that's someone that, like, recently I watched the, uh, it was one of these cable channels, CNN or something, the, the history of late night. Right. And it occurred to me, that as much as everyone, you know, lodged Johnny Carson, this and that, he was the only game in town, et cetera, et cetera, a major label model. But like Dick Cavett, look what he did with his show. You know, he's sitting there having Salvador Dali on. He's having like John Lennon and Yoko come in. And like, like he was, because he was like, hey, try and do this establishment stuff doesn't work. So I'm just going to like, let's just throw this against the wall and see what sticks. And basically until Letterman, like he was the only one that really had done that. And like, that had to have been a lonely place when you were doing it. Where everyone's like, hey, it sucks how you're not these more successful versions of the thing that you do. Right. And if you listen to people that who give you advice that are basically sum up to, I want you to be more like the things that are the other things in this thing that you do. Ignore yeah. them. Yeah, because yeah. you can't do that or you would have already done it. Yeah, that's not you. Dick Cavett wasn't Johnny Carson, you know? Like, Dave Letterman wasn't Johnny Carson. Dave Letterman wasn't Jay Leno. Like, and go to Chris Gethart who's I think the, the the only one that's pushed the fucking needle forward in talk shows in a long time, unless you talk about absurdist shit. Um, don't try to do something that's already been done. That way lies Candlebox. That way lies Ugly Kid Joe. You, you know, like that's hack shit. And I, I by the way, I'll, I don't get, I have no stake in it. I'll name names of all the quote unquote leftist podcasts that are like, you know, like doing like, oh, what if Chapo Trap House, but this, like what if, are you fucking kidding me? Stop wasting everybody's time. Like, don't, don't, don't waste any, don't waste your own time. 
but don't waste the listener's time because even if someone engages with it because it hits it hits the notes it's like the shitty rolling stones uh cover band at at the fucking roadhouse like it's not the rolling stones don't fool yourself yeah and well that's a good place to end up on and thank you for coming on it's been an honor to have you here too pleasure Pleasure. And uh, I'm sure people will see us again because either Jason or Forrest will pull us back into orbits <laughs> like like black holes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have some uh, you know uh, s- some absurd, awesome sci-fi movie or something to like uh, to to deconstruct together. And, yeah, and, uh, that that'll be great. And I look forward to it. It's always a pleasure. Uh, in, in, enjoy the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Have a great evening. All right. All right. I do have to do a little Patreon nod. Um, one of the things about the busker economy is keeping your end of the deal. So I'm going to give my new shout outs for those who are uh, people who are supporting me and sponsoring specific shows. Um, so let me do that real fast. There's uh, two new of you. Ivan Ivanovich, my Russian friend um, uh, who has become a, Khan E. Kahanan, um, and uh, let's see, uh, the aforementioned but unknown last name Patrick, um, who has become a Khan E. Kahanan. Thank you for your support, and because of stuff like this, uh, hopefully, there's more of this in the future, including also more of nailing it down. And with that. I'm going to let you guys have a good rest of your evening. And I hope at least you found some cool music to listen to and a new way to approach it. Um, Have a good rest of your day. Thank you for supporting Varnblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening.